Good morning, Cairo. Good afternoon, Bishkek, and good evening, Singapore. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Thailand's shocking election and why Microsoft's landmark acquisition deal might be in trouble. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I'm very well, Ethan. And how are you? I'm doing great. We're actually we're actually in person today. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a bit you, weird. You, you came into Washington D.C. What are you What are you doing here? Meetings uh, and giving uh, some remarks to a very esteemed law firm tomorrow. Oh, very nice, very nice. And and I'm glad to have you in person because in the past I, I noticed that you look down at your computer every now and then. I think you've been taking notes. This time, <laughs> computers are gone. Uh, this is just this is just mono and mono. Yeah, so the quality may be uh, significantly decreased, but we'll give it a go, eh? <laughs> uh, well, so we're talking about Thailand's elections today. Uh, there was another major election this past weekend in Turkey, though, that we'll, we'll cover in more detail on Friday's episode. It is really big news, so I wanted to mm. give you just a, a chance to reflect on that before we get started. Yeah, I, I mean, it's still early, right? Like, what, the results are kind of in, but we don't know who's going to be the president because, um, you know, the, the result wasn't conclusive. But, you know, Erdo- Erdogan, it just strikes me, Erdogan is a rare breed of politician. Um, he's just a real survivor. Uh, you know, he, he uses every everything he's got in his power, yeah. state institutions, every lever of power to stay in power. Um, you know, I heard the election described um, on another podcast as a freeish election, but on a very, very tilted field. And I think that kind of sums up um, the state of the the Turkish uh, political uh, environment. Uh, one, I think, one of our favorite geopolitical analysts, Jacob Shapiro, kind of cautioned everyone not to pay too much attention to the polls um, before the election. And the polls obviously said that the opposition was going to win. That hasn't happened, so he he was right again. Um, what comes next? As I said, we don't know. Um, there'll be a runoff on May twenty eighth. Um, you know, I think a lot of people in the West might be hoping that Erdogan goes away, but uh, we might be stuck with him for a while yet, I suspect. Agreed on all accounts. And you gave away a lot of what I'm looking forward to talking to with the guest on Friday. So I apologize. Maybe I'll just cancel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, John, let's head 7,000 kilometers uh, southeast to Thailand now. What were the results of that election? Yeah, I, I think Turkey's election kind of took up a lot of the airtime over the weekend, but um, the Thai election was a, was a pretty interesting one to watch as well. You know, I think we'll probably be coming back to this in the future because even though the voting is is over, Thailand technically doesn't have a, a new government yet. Um, you know, two parties emerged victorious from the vote, the Move Forward Party, which won 151 of the 500 seats, and the Putai Party, I hope that's... Uh, yeah, a passable good. pronunciation, yeah. good. Um, they they won 141 seats uh, of the 500. Uh, a pretty a pretty surprising result for a few reasons. First of all, Putai had um, been the country's largest party more or less since its founding back in 2007. Um, it was founded by the former prime minister Thaksin Shinawat, um, whose younger sister Yingluck uh, also became prime minister, and the current leader is Thaksin's daughter. So you know, most expected a party with you know really. You know, a pretty, a pretty tight grip on power. They expected them to win the most seats this time around as well. But move forward actually came out of nowhere to, uh, well, not nowhere, but out of, out of, out of the rearview uh, rear mirror to win the day. Well, well, kind of nowhere. I mean, I want to pause there. I know you said that the result was surprising for a number of reasons, and I want to let you list those. Mm. 
But what's the deal with this this move forward? I was just starting to hit my stride. Um, <laughs> no, it's a fair question. Um, so move, move Forward is this successor party to a party called the Future Forward Party or Future Forward, which was dissolved by a very controversial court order uh, back in 2020. Um, and it was probably Move Forward's leader, a guy named Peter now I'm going to get this right, Limja Rowanrat. Uh, if any, if there are any Thai speakers, you can tell me how bad I bad I mispronounced that. But I'll just call him Peter for let's the rest of that. this. Yeah. Yes, let's do that. Um, uh, so this guy Peter, he was probably responsible for most of this uh, electoral success that they had over the weekend. He's only 42. Um, he's Harvard and MIT educated, uh, a successful businessman, um, and in uh, 2008 he was listed as one of. Thailand's most eligible bachelors. <laughs> no surprise there with that, that CV. Right, seriously. Yeah. Um, but I mean, also no surprise that young people absolutely love the guy. Uh, and they were they were kind of the cohort that powered his dark horse election bid over the weekend. Um, and their enthusiasm for Peter is probably reflected in, in voter turnout, which reached an all-time high on Sunday of 75%. But what makes Move Forward so notable, I think, is, and this brings me back to what I was kind of mentioning earlier, is that they are pretty progressive um, for Thailand. The party is pro-democracy, anti-military rule. Um, they're in favor of same-sex marriage. They want to end military conscription. Uh, they want to reform Thailand's monarchy, which is a real third rail issue in Thailand and has been for a, for a while now. And, and how about the, the Pier Thai? What's their platform? Well, they're a bit more conservative for sure, but like Move Forward, they want to see Thailand turn back into a democracy. Uh, so on Monday, they agreed alongside a, a number of the smaller parties in Thailand to combine forces and form a, a coalition government under Peter's premiership with three or about 309 seats, so a majority. Oh, that's it then. 309 <laughs> out of 500 seats? That, I mean, what are we doing here? That's more than enough to make you know, the, the new prime minister. You know better than that. It's not, it's not even <laughs> close. You know much better than that. It's, it, the, the, the reality is it's up to Thailand's parliament to vote and approve of the new government. Um, the pro-democracy coalition, as you mentioned, 309 out of the 500 seats in the lower house. But Thailand's upper house, the Senate, has 250 members. And they've all been appointed by the ruling military junta um, since a new constitution was introduced in 2017. So that means Pitt actually needs 376 votes to become prime minister. And he's 67 shy of that now. So... That's it then. <laughs> 309 out of 750 seats. That's not nearly enough to make Peter the new prime minister. Again, not quite. It's uh, not totally clear yet. I, I mean, the military government that's led Thailand since the coup back in 2014 has become exceedingly unpopular in the country. It was made pretty clear back in 2020 and 2021 when hundreds of thousands of people protested right around Thailand um, in response to the dissolution of Future Ford, the, right. the political party I mentioned earlier. Um I think protesters were also upset with the 2017 constitution. They were upset with the corruption, the human rights abuses. Um, they are upset by Thailand's Les Majeste uh, laws, which are some of the harshest in the world. Um, they forbid criticism, you know, any kind of criticism of the country's monarchy um, and punishes certain speech with up to 87 years in jail. Um, they're actually the only country to have made those kinds of laws more strict since the end of World War II, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, but anyway, if those protests weren't enough to prove that people in Thailand were fed up, I think these elections are fairly definitive, right? Yeah. Um, so yes, the Senate could vote to reject uh, the election results and keep and and this new young bolshie leader for Thailand uh, and maintain the current prime minister. But I think that move would be very risky and met with a lot of backlash. Um, and as Peter said as much in his press conference on Monday, he said, and I'm quoting here, with the consensus that came out of the election, it would be a 
a quite a hefty price to pay for someone who's thinking of abolishing the election res- election results or forming a minority government. And I don't think that the people of Thailand would allow that to happen. I can't believe you were able to, to memorize that quote. No notes, Ethan, yeah. no notes. <laughs> so, I mean, John, that, that, that makes sense what you're saying. It seems like the military is in a bind here. It's mm. because they've baked so many contradictions into the system, right? They, they want the appearance of democracy without a genuine opposition. Mm-hmm. They want civilian rule without civilians, which is hard to do. But I think now they kind of have to make a choice of what they actually want. Yeah, I think you're right. It's really at a crossroads. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. Um, You know, which direction the military ultimately chooses to go in will have major consequences, to state the obvious. Thailand's economy has flagged behind its regional peers and all sorts of metrics over over the past decade. Um, And if the junta willfully rejects the will of the voters after giving them the opportunity to vote and make their voices heard, uh, the, you know, the turmoil that might ensue from that will sink the country even further. And I mean, you only have to go to Thai, Thailand's northwestern border, I think it is, yeah, northwestern with uh, Myanmar to see what happens when a, when a country or to a country when the military loses the plot and, and, and is determined to keep power at any costs. I mean, it's, it's almost unthinkable to me that that could happen in Thailand. Um, and I'm not saying it's likely, but, you know, let's just say we'll be watching this one pretty closely. Today's show is sponsored by Holy. With Holy, you can earn cashback, rewards, and discounts on everything from mental health and fitness to personal care and productivity. Here's how it works. You get cashback, savings, and points for various health and wellness services. Then you can redeem your points for cashback or use them for premium products and services in Holy's wellness marketplace. Check out the show notes to learn more. Holy is the credit card to make health and wellness affordable All right. Welcome back, John. Most people will know you as Intrigue's co-founder, but they may not realize you're also our lead video game correspondent. Oh, boy. You've, you've dug me a hole there. I, I'm actually a purist, Ethan. I haven't played video games since the days of Sega Mega Drive and Super Nintendo, which, uh, you know, they don't make them like they used to. That makes you sound way less cool than you think it does. That's a fair point. Uh, I suspect a fair bit older than I would like to admit as well, right? All right. Well, video, our lead video game correspondent, you know, take it away. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, this, you know, my coolness or lack of it notwithstanding, this is a big story, I think. It's gone a little bit under the radar um, because it's about gaming. Uh, not something you normally kind of associate with geopolitics. Anyway, um, late on Monday, the EU's antitrust regulator actually approved Microsoft's plan to acquire the video game maker Activision Blizzard for around 70 billion US dollars. And if that sounds like a ton of money, uh, it is. <laughs> if ultimately successful, it would be the largest consumer tech merger in several decades. And it could really shake up the industry. The EU took the case really seriously because of just how disruptive they say the merger might be. In exchange for their approval, the EU got Microsoft to agree that any Activision titles, any games, um, and there are some huge ones, right, like Call of Duty and and World of Warcraft, um, those games would be made available not only on Microsoft's Xbox platform, but across the spectrum. So PlayStation, Nintendo, and so on. If, if a game called World of Warcraft isn't geopolitical, then I don't know a, what is. Not a bad point. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> uh, but I, I've, I've learned from story one that there's a lot of nuance in these sorts of yeah, conversations. Exactly. Hmm. So I'm guessing that Microsoft will need more than just the EU's approval 
for this to go ahead. Yeah, right again. Nuance is the is the word of the day. Um, so the the wrinkle to this one is that a couple of weeks ago, the UK's antitrust regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, uh, they blocked the deal on grounds that Microsoft's assurances didn't go far enough. Basically, they said that uh, the regulator said that um, they would have to be constantly monitoring Microsoft to ensure that it wasn't withholding games from other consoles, other platforms, uh, and said that the acquisition could lead to, quoting again, reduced innovation and less choice for UK gamers over the years to come. What makes that dichotomy interesting, I think, is that only a handful of years ago, of course, the UK was part of the EU and it would have had you know, much less sway over the decision. Um, but the UK has one of the largest gaming markets in the world and it's sort of really, f- I guess, flexing its regulatory independence. It's sort, of, it's sort of striking, right, that these two regulatory bodies with presumably the, the same mandate came to such different conclusions and it's now Microsoft and Activision that are left in limbo. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, don't laugh, but I think it goes to show how difficult it can be for multinational companies. Uh, it perhaps doesn't uh, doesn't you know engender a lot of pity, but those law firms you were talking to really convinced you. Exactly, exactly. They've got to me, right? Uh, but but seriously, there's such a wide range of regulatory regimes that companies have to sort through now, um, and they often contradict each other. Uh, so even with the EU's approval, and not to mention that Microsoft has already gotten Saudi, Brazil, Chile, Serbia, Japan, and South Africa, they've all already approved this deal. Um, but Microsoft still needs to to get the UK, um, China, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, and the US. Um, and regulators in the US have already sued Microsoft to block the deal. Um, it bears mentioning here that a few tech analysts have called the UK's threat to stop the acquisition pretty stupid because it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the gaming market. But regulatory competence is a whole nother podcast, Ethan. Uh, and we don't take sides here, right? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> no, we don't. But, but John, for a deal this size, it makes sense that there, it would require a lot of you know global buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. Um Plus, whether or not you want this specific deal to go through, I, I think what we're seeing is that national regulators are beginning to delineate their power over big tech. You know, I think it's fair to say that regulators have struggled to grapple with the supranational influence of these giant tech companies. Um, jurisdictions right around the world are realizing that decisions, you know, made in Silicon Valley or or Seattle, in Microsoft's case, are setting the global standards for tech, um, and and the EU in particular, but the UK clearly as well. Uh, they don't like that, and they're starting to flex their muscles and, and dictate terms back to these companies. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how far this stuff goes. I mean, it's hard to imagine these companies doing business in all these jurisdictions if going forward, each jurisdiction has different rules. Mm. I think we've both talked about our desire for a global government. <laughs> uh, but uh, Did we? I forgot about that oh, one. Uh, that was <laughs> just, you know, a fever uh, dream. <laughs> fever dream. But right, I mean... If each jurisdiction has different rules, the, the cost of compliance would be prohibitive. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it could lead to a real splintering of tech along national lines. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing, but it, it would be very different to what we have now. And then, you know, with AI on the way, uh, that's threatening to upturn the apple cart all over again, just as regulators feel like they're getting a handle on Web 2.0, right? Um, but people far smarter than I on these issues don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, I sure as hell don't. Um, But I think if Microsoft's appeal against the UK isn't successful, if they can't buy Activision, um, then they may exit the gaming business altogether, leaving only Sony and to a lesser extent Nintendo in the market. And I feel like that would be kind of an ironic outcome of of decisions designed to guard against anti-competitive behavior. John, if it makes you feel any better, I am far smarter than you and I don't know... (laughs) 
that's going to go on the musicians either. So fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, we both don't know. Sorry, that was that was a long conversation, but that was a blast. Glad to do it in person. We should do, do it more it often. Yeah. yeah, come. I'll be in Chicago next time. <laughs> Excellent. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Speaking of elections, voters went to the polls in India's Karnataka state and voted overwhelmingly for the opposition National Congress Party. Some experts say the result may indicate a backlash against Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who faces re-election next year. Syria has been invited to the UN's climate change summit, aka COP28, in the UAE later this year. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was also welcomed back into the Arab League earlier this month after more than a decade-long suspension. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, EU embassies in Washington, D.C. held open houses over the weekend. I don't know if you were there, but the lines were pretty much too long to get in. Uh, but I was lucky to stop by the Cyprus embassy, and I learned an interesting fact about the Cyprus flag. It's one of only two flags anywhere in the world to feature a map. Do you know the other one? Well, you got to check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see who it is. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday. Friday.